While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of their killing him. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. For with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralysed or lame were healed. So there was great joy in that city. I'm going to pray now, and then Rowan's going to come speak to us. Um, Dear Lord, thank you so much for this time that you've given us today to have the book of Acts read aloud and explained to us by Rowan. Um, Please teach us and transform our hearts today. And please be helping Rowan to teach clearly and faithfully. Amen. don't know if you've been following along in the last week or 10 days or so. There's been a little bit of a kerfuffle going on in our city. And the, um, the kerfuffle has been over what goes on in what's called special religious education classes in state schools. You might have heard of SRE, sometimes it's known as scripture. Uh, I want to represent the situation accurately. I think it's, as far as I can make out, it goes like this. Uh, SRE, special religious education, is provided by authorised sort of providers who teach an authorised sort of syllabus. But what has happened recently is that the Department of Education and Training has sent a notification to school principals saying, can you please ensure that these three books, and it names three particular books, books as it happens, all written by people with PhDs, all written by people who live here in Sydney, uh, books that I happen to have on my shelf at home, uh, can you make sure that these three books are not being used in SRE classes? Uh, they are no longer authorised. Now, trying to dig into the story, it turns out that two, one of the books was never really authorised anyway, uh, but two of the books were certainly on the authorised sort of syllabus for teaching uh, special religious education uh, through the Anglican Church, in this particular instance was the provider, in state high schools. These two books teach what I would consider to be traditional, mainstream Christian sexual ethics. They don't teach anything weird, they're not sort of extremist, they just teach what what most evangelicals, in fact I would say what all evangelicals would probably say, this is just mainline Christian Bible teaching on sexual morality and sexual ethics. But those are the books that the government in our state, has now said can no longer be used in Protestant special religious education. Now, to understand special religious education, it's not compulsory for children, right, in state schools. As a parent, and I've got five kids who've gone through state schools, so I sort of understand this a little bit, uh, I give permission for my kids to be in that SRE class and I can opt what SRE class they go to whether they go to Protestant scripture, whether they go to Roman Catholic scripture, whether they go to uh, Buddhist special religious education, or if they're not in any of those, and uh, I could opt that they could go to 
a secular ethics course is also offered in some schools. I get to choose. So as a parent, what I'm choosing is I want my kids to get special religious education in the Christian faith provided by an authorised Protestant Christian provider teaching an authorised Protestant Christian uh, syllabus that they might be instructed in the Christian faith. But the government has now said in the last week that Christians can no longer teach the mainstream Christian faith to children whose parents have asked for them to receive education in the mainstream Christian faith. The government has now said you're not allowed to teach that Christian truth to the kids who want to hear it or the kids whose parents want them to hear it. That to me seems like a big step for our state government to make because it's now, it's now deciding what can or cannot be taught as part of the Christian faith at some level. I think that's a big deal. Now, uh, I find it hard to imagine that that would have happened 10 years ago, 20 years ago, and I think most of the time, probably, probably because we live such you know, short lives, we just assume that the opportunities to declare the Christian faith are going to stay pretty much as they are now. That's what we sort of hope and pray would be the case. That we would have whatever freedoms we have now to declare the Christian faith, that that will just continue. Like no one has asked to check my talk, right, before I give it. The EU says we would like Rowan Kemp to come and teach at our public meeting and so as long as he signs off on our doctrinal basis, so I do that and no one double checks what I'm saying. No one, like I don't have to run it past anyone beforehand. We just assume that that will stay as a freedom, right? That it won't get worse. But actually if we step back and think about what has religious freedom looked like in this country over the last 60 years, go back to say start at the 1950s and track it through to now, our freedoms have not stayed exactly the same. And if you're not convinced of that, just think about what's happened in the last very week. Our freedoms have not stayed the same. And so I have, I have two predictions for you. I'm not a prophet, so I can, I can be wrong. But this is my first prediction is this. It's going to get worse in your lifetime. It's going to get harder for Christians to publicly declare the orthodox mainstream Christian faith. And that's going to happen in your lifetime. Because it's happening, it's happening now. I think it's going to get worse. Now, I could be wrong. Maybe the law will be kind and maybe there'll be you know, a return to the era of Christendom when most of society, even if they weren't active believers in Jesus, they were sort of positive vaguely towards the Christian faith. But, I, but barring a miraculous work of God in that sort of way, I suspect it's just going to get worse. It's going to get harder because that's the trajectory we've been on for the last 60 years. Now, I could be wrong on that, right? I acknowledge that. But I have a second prediction, and I reckon on this one I am absolutely on rock-solid ground and will not be proved wrong. The second prediction. The second prediction is this. Despite the opposition potentially getting worse, despite there being more persecution of Christians and less opportunities for Christians to declare their faith, despite that, the Christian message will not be stopped. That's my second prediction. No matter how bad it gets, the Christian message will not be stopped. Now, my grounds for that is not based on the very impressive next generation of Christians that I often get to see here in the EU. I'm sorry, it's not actually about you. 
The reason I think that the Christian message cannot be stopped, despite how, however much opposition is thrown against it, is because I think that's what the Bible itself actually teaches us, that the Christian message cannot be stopped, which is why that's what I call today's talk, a message you just can't stop. So I want to show this to you from the Scriptures, and we're doing it by looking at the book of Acts. So if you've got your Bible there, that'll be really useful. And I'm going to try and show you how I think the message here is that God's word will not be stopped no matter how much opposition there is. Uh, so where are we in the book of Acts? Well, just as a bit of orientation for you, if you might remember, uh, back in chapter 1, Jesus basically announced the plan. He'd spent three years publicly teaching, he'd died for the sins of the world, he'd been raised to new life, he appears to his disciples and he says, this is the plan, and in my own words rather than his, Basically, tell the world about me. That's the, that's the game plan. Tell the world about me. That is, tell the world who I am and tell the world what I have done. Those are the two things that they're meant to say. Who I am and what I've done. That is, to fill it out in more detail, that Jesus is the Christ and Lord. That he's the one at the centre of all of God's plans for the whole of the world. He's the Messiah. That's who he is. That he is the king in God's kingdom. What's he done? Well, through his death, as a substitute for sins and he's rising to new sort of eternal life, then he's established, we learn, the new covenant, the new agreement between God and his people. He's opened a way into being part now of the kingdom of God, as a child of God, coming under the rule of God, with your sins all wiped away, your sins forgiven, and the Spirit, a Holy Spirit, poured out into your life. That is who he is and that is what he has done and that's what he has enabled. And that what Jesus says in Acts chapter 1 is, go tell the rest of the world about me. Start here in Jerusalem, go to Judea, the surrounding area, and Samaria, and even to the ends of the earth. You will be my chosen eyewitnesses in those areas. That was, that was the game plan as Jesus set it out in chapter 1. We've been looking over this uh, semester from chapter 2 through to chapter 7 uh, and we've only got to the end of chapter 7 and now you know, this is the last talk on Acts for the semester so I, it's going to be interesting the second half of the year because we have to get through the whole rest of the book of Acts but that's okay. It'll be an adventure for all of us to work out how to do that but we'll work that out when the time comes. We've got to the end of chapter 7 and by the end of chapter 7 where are they? Where have these apostles got to? Well they're still in Jerusalem. But what we've seen whilst they've been in Jerusalem they have been proclaiming this message about Jesus We've seen that that has produced a lot of persecution but also we've seen that many people have come to faith in Jesus as that message is proclaimed. Now, they haven't done it outside of Jerusalem. They're still just speaking this message to fellow Jews. However, what we've seen is both persecution and people coming to faith. And what Luke does, the Luke who's writing down the events for us, I think he deliberately puts two things next to each other. He uses juxtaposition to make a point. So I want you to get your Bible there, have a look at these couple of passages and notice how Luke deliberately puts some things together and ask yourself, what's the point he's trying to make by putting these two things together repeatedly? So first of all, Acts chapter 4, verses 1 to 4. Acts 4, 1 to 4. I'll read there. Uh, Luke says, the, the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees, so that's all the Jewish authorities, they came up to Peter and John, two of the apostles, while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. 
They seized Peter and John and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. Right? So what are you seeing there? Preaching leading to persecution. They're thrown in jail. What's the very next thing that Luke points out to you? Verse 4. But many who heard the message believed and the number of men grew to about 5,000. So you've got preaching leading to simultaneously persecution. They're thrown in jail. But guess what? About, about, five, about you know, thousands of people came to faith. Many who heard the message believed. The number grew to about 5,000 simultaneously to while the apostles were in prison. He puts those two ideas together. Jump forward to the next one, chapter 5, verse 40 to 42. Chapter 5, verse 40 to 42. Uh, a bit of context here. Uh, Peter and John have been hauled before the Jewish authorities again for doing, for again, for healing and preaching. Uh, and uh, there's a guy there on the Jewish leadership team whose name is Gamaliel and he gives a bit of a speech about what should happen. We're going to come back to his speech in a moment. It's quite important. But we're going to jump in at the end of his speech, verse 40. Gamaliel's speech, verse 40, persuaded them, that is the religious authorities, they called the apostles in and had them flogged. So yet more persecution for preaching the message. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. What's the very next thing that Luke records for us? The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. And what did they do as a result? Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Christ. The persecution and opposition doesn't stop the preaching of the word, of the message. Not at all. Day after day they keep on doing it. The persecution does not stop the message, see. Jump forward again, this time to chapter 8, verses 1 to 4. We looked at this passage a little bit last week. We saw at uh, the end of chapter 7, Stephen, uh, who's a follower of Jesus, was the first person who was killed for his faith in Jesus. That's narrated for us in chapter 7. See how, what uh, Luke describes next, halfway through chapter 8, verse 1. On that day, the day Stephen dies, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Right? The believers are on the run. Stephen's just been, one of their numbers, just been executed. They all flee the city. They get out of here. The persecute, that's serious persecution, right? The apostles hang about, but everybody else departs. And what do they do then? Well, let's read on. Verse 2, Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church, going from house to house. He dragged off men and women and put them in prison. It's all sounding pretty bad. Verse 4. Those who had been scattered went into hiding for fear of their lives. That's not what it says. Those who had been scattered kept quiet that they were followers of Jesus because they were terrified. No, that's not what it says. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. They were scattered, run out of Jerusalem for fear of persecution. And what happened? They kept talking about Jesus. So did the persecution snuff out the Christian faith? Did the persecution snuff out the ministry of the word, the proclaiming of... Not at all, actually. In this case, God used the persecution to get the message out of Jerusalem. Remember, they've been stuck in Jerusalem for the first seven chapters. Jesus said, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria. And where do they flee to? Judea and Samaria. So, so Jesus actually uses the persecution 
to make sure that his message is proclaimed according to his plan beyond Jerusalem. And as we read in that, in that little story there that Christy read out for us, they actually go down and the Samaritans start to respond positively to this message about Jesus. So, Luke has put these two things, I think, deliberately together repeatedly. It's the persecution, but the work of God's word, the ministry of God's word, it continues despite the persecution. He deliberately puts those two things together. Which raises the question for me, how come they couldn't stop the message? Why couldn't they stop the message? Why, I mean, at this point, if the total number of Christians in the whole world were all there in Jerusalem, a couple of thousand people, but even still, that's a small number in the whole city of Jerusalem, why couldn't they be effective in snuffing it out? Why couldn't they succeed in their opposition to the message? And, well... The answer to that is back in Gamaliel's speech in chapter 5. If you flick back to chapter 5 of Acts, let's have a look at this speech by this guy, not a believer. He's one of the Jewish authorities, this speech by Gamaliel. I'm going to read uh, from chapter 5, verse 27. Having brought brought in the apostles, they made them to appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders to not teach in this name. That is the name of Jesus, he said. Yet you filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Peter and the other apostles replied, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. I mean, what did the high priest just said? You're trying to make us guilty of Jesus' blood. What's Peter just say as he's on trial? Well, God's raised Jesus, the Jesus you killed. So, yeah, good one, Peter. Like, that's keeping it quiet there, isn't it? Like, he's just going for it. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and saviour, that he might give repentance and forgiveness of sins to Israel. We are witnesses of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were furious and wanted to put them to death. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, who was honoured by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered that the men be put outside for a little while. Then he addressed them. Men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. Some time ago, Thutius appeared, claiming to be somebody, and about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed. All his followers were dispersed, and it all came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census and he led a band of people in revolt. He too was killed and all his followers were scattered. What's what's the historical uh, process that he's identifying? When someone rises up in a sort of revolution and gets some followers to them, what we've done in the past, when we kill the leader, the followers all disperse. You're stressed out, guys, about these Jesus followers? Well, we've already killed Jesus. These guys, surely won't they disperse like the others? You see the historical process he's identifying. Notice what he says in verse 38. Therefore, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But then I think he says something that is quite prophetic, actually, in its accuracy. He says, but if it is from God you will not be able to stop these men. 
you will only find yourself fighting against God. Why were they unable to snuff out the Christian faith? Why were they unable to completely get rid of it? It's because, in the words of Gamaliel, it was from God. And so they were not able to stop these people. They were actually fighting against God. It's God's word that was going out. God's word about Jesus. That's what was going out and that's why they were unable to snuff it out, to stop it. Now, uh, in the book of Acts, this idea of the word of God going out, it's really significant. In fact, if you sort of read right through the book of Acts, which I'd encourage you to do sometime, it's useful just to notice how often this word in terms of the word of God, is used. It comes up quite a lot. It's so much so that it's like the word of God is, a, is almost like another character in the narrative. What I mean is this, when we talk about the word of God, we're not talking about a single like little grammatical word. You know, It's not like saying mud. There's a word, mud. But the word of God is not a particular word. You know, It's not even the word Jesus. Like, The word of God means the message of God. You can see this in the book of Acts, actually, if you look it up later, in Acts chapter 2, verse 41, Acts 2, 41, or Acts 11, 16. Uh, In those places, it talks about just someone who speaks a word to somebody. But they don't mean a single word, they mean a message. And it's given in lots of words, right? You use lots of words to give your word, like your message. Anyway, you get the idea. The word of God is the message of God, right? And in the book of Acts, this word of God is sometimes described as the word of the Lord or described as the word of his grace, of his undeserved kindness or the word of the gospel, the great public good news announcement. They're all used synonymously, right? That's the word, the message. What does this word do in the book of Acts? Well, sometimes the word is preached Uh, Often it's preached or proclaimed or spoken as you read through the book of Acts. Sometimes it's served. Now, that's not like a tennis serve, right? They serve the word of God, no. And it's not like serve it up like on a platter either. What they mean is the apostles talk about themselves in chapter 6 as serve, that their job is to serve the word of God. That is, they understand that they are servants, if you like, of this word of God. They are to proclaim the word in service of this word of God. They are serving the word of God. Uh, The word of God is received and when it's received, what that means is not just heard. When you receive the words as the word of God, that means you hear it as, wow, God is speaking to me and you, you respond in faith and repentance, right? So the word of God is received, accepted. The word of God is glorified, honoured, by those who receive it. So the word of God appears in lots of ways, but the word then also does some strange things in the book of Acts. The word of God, we're told, increases. How does the word of God increase? How does it get bigger? The word of God multiplies. I don't know what that looks like. Like if you think your Bible is the word of God, it's got little Bibles coming out of it or something like it. <laughs> the word of God's multiplying and just like the word of God increases and multiplies. We're told that it prevails, like it, it, it's victorious, powerfully, we're told. So you can see some of these if you want to look them up later. Uh, Acts chapter 6, verse 7. Uh, Acts chapter 12, 
uh, verse 24, Acts chapter 19, verse 40 is where some of these come from. The idea of the what does it mean for the word of God to be increasing? Well, chapter 6, verse 7 probably is helpful. Um, I'll read it there, chapter 6, 7. So the word of God, my Bible says spread, but that literally is just word increased. And the number of disciples in Jerusalem multiplied rapidly. So for the word of God to be increasing means more people are becoming Christians. More people are putting their trust in Jesus. Yeah, that's what it means for the word of God to increase. I heard a great story today just of somebody studying in pharmacy who became a Christian this week. Isn't that awesome? We could say the word of God increased this week on our campus. It increased as another person came to saving faith in Jesus. That's what it means. The word of God increased, powerfully prevails. Uh, when you look carefully about then how does this word win people to saving faith, it's very clear in the book of Acts that it's Jesus himself who's working through his word and bringing people to saving faith. You might look it up later, chapter 2, verse 47, uh, or chapter 11, verse 21, or chapter 13, verse 48. We're told things like, it's that the Lord added to their number daily those who are being saved as the word goes out. So it's the word of the Lord that goes out and it's the Lord who actually draws people to faith through that word as it goes out. Does that make sense? Jesus is in charge of his mission. Now, just so I want to stop and think about this, so the word of God is a big theme in the book of Acts, which is why I'm spending today talking about it, so that as you read the book of Acts, you can make sense of what you're reading. It's a big theme in the book of Acts, and you should notice whenever Luke mentions things like the word of God increased, multiplied, powerfully prevailed. But it's not just a big deal, the word of God, in the book of Acts. It's got a rich heritage back in the Old Testament. Think for a moment. How does God create the universe according to Genesis chapter 1? What does God do? He speaks. God speaks six words and the universe, the whole universe, comes into being. That's how powerful is God's word. Think about Mount Sinai. There's Moses at Mount Sinai with the people of Israel gathered around the foot of the mountain. He receives the Ten Commandments. We call them the Ten Commandments. Literally in Hebrew it is the Ten Words. The Ten Words that God gives his people to be, you will be my people, I will be your God. This is the covenant relationship I'm establishing with you. He speaks those words that establish that covenant. Or go to Isaiah chapter 55. If you uh, flick up Isaiah 55, just such a great passage. Probably maybe well known to you. If not, uh, it's a good one to get to know. Isaiah chapter 55. Just a beautiful chapter where uh, God appeals to people to come back to him. If you're thirsty, if you're thirsty for real life, he says, come back to me at the beginning of the chapter. And actually, if you read through the first five verses, he talks about covenant and he talks about one from David's line, a Messiah who will come as part of the new covenant promises. But if we're going to jump in at verse 6, verse 6, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the evil man his thoughts. Let him turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on him, to our God, for he will freely pardon. Now that's pretty unusual behaviour, right? 
if someone's really sort of gets in your face about something, someone does something to your property, someone does something to someone you love, someone does something to you, what's our normal reaction? Our normal reaction is you give me half a chance and I'm going to take you down. Right? That's what you do. You fight fire with fire. Right? What's God say here? Let the wicked man, the person who's gone against me, let the wicked man forsake his, th- his way, the evil man his thoughts, let him turn to the Lord, he will have mercy on him. To our God, he will freely pardon. That's the character of the one true living God. Graciousness. Undeserved kindness. Love. Even to those who hate him. That's the character of the one true living God. And you'll notice then how he follows that up. Verse 8. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. He's not like us, right? Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bard and flourish so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. You see what he's saying is the word that goes out from his mouth, his God's word, always achieves its purpose. And his purpose is not dry and desert-like. No, it's like the rain, it's like the snow. It produces abundant fruit. God's word achieves his purposes and it produces life. It produces abundance. That's what God's word does when it goes out. That's what his word did when it reached our sister in pharmacy on Tuesday. It brought life. The word of God multiplies, it increases, it prevails, it achieves God's purpose because it's his word. And it's glorious and powerful and life-giving. So what do we make of all this? Go back to where, what, Luke, what Luke had put together. Luke had put together both the persecution that the preaching of this word evoked and the fact that the word just kept going. What's his point? Despite the weakness of the church, despite the frailty of God's people as human beings, the word of God that goes out from their mouths powerfully prevails and brings life. The way I think about it is I want you to imagine a bit of a a pond, right? a big pond, and we have various rocks, big rocks that are sticking up out of the water in this pond, like Christy here. She's going to be a big rock, right? And we take another rock and we drop it into the middle of the pond. Now, you don't have to be a physics major to understand what happens when you drop a rock into a pond, right? What happens next? Or maybe you do have to be a physics major. Um, (laughs) Ripples, thank you. Yes, there's ripples, right? You drop the... Right, we drop the strain, and the ripples, in my analogy, the ripples are the Word of God going out. And when they reach a rock... They might be, that, that, that might be stopped them, but, but is it stopped? What, is the, what do the ripples do? They just keep on flowing around, right? 
the word of God. It might meet opposition in different places and it will because Jesus said they hate you because they hated me first but the word of God prevails. It will just keep on going, achieving God's purposes. So this is meant to be deeply encouraging for you, right? Because you might think, but I'm so weak. But God, through his word, prevails. Even as we open our weak mouths and speak what seems to be such a weak, foolish message about Jesus to our lab partner, to our friend, to our family, to the person we work with, even as we speak what seems to be such a weak... But no, it is the powerful word of God that goes forth, achieves God's purposes and brings life to those who are dead. Be encouraged that as you preach this word, it is God's powerful word going out. Now, we could talk a lot more about you know, how that, those ripples of the word of God have gone out since these days in Acts, which is like 2,000 years ago, through to now. And if we had time, I could show you maps, you know, about how the Word of God has spread around the world over all the centuries, all the way through to 2010, say, or 15 even, right? I could show you such maps if I had them. Oh, look, there I have them. But it's a message that has gone out from the Mediterranean right around the whole world. So you might think, wow, job done. No, not job done. This is an interesting map. See these really light-coloured countries? These light-coloured countries are countries where less than 10% of the non-Christians in those countries know a Christian. Or put it another way, nine, more than 9 out of 10 non-Christians in those countries don't know a Christian. So if, so if you're a non-Christian in that country and you wanted to know about Jesus... You don't know a single Christian to ask. These other ones, which are slightly darker, somewhere between 10 and 40% of non-Christians know a Christian. That still means more than 6 out of 10 don't know a Christian, even if they wanted to know about Jesus. There's a lot of work to do, isn't there? You think, well, that's not just about the rest of the world, actually. This, if you're looking for a good distraction as you head up to exams, this would be a really great one, joshuaproject.net. I don't know if you've ever looked at this site. They try to track unreached people groups in terms of the Christian message around the world. This is a list of different people groups in Australia. These are Australian figures. So I'll show you what I might mean here. Let's pick one. The Sinhalese people. They're from Sri Lanka. Right? Most of them have a Buddhist background. There are 80,000 Sinhalese in Australia. There are 0.0% of them who call themselves Christian. And 0.0% of those who are in evangelical churches. Out of that 80,000. Now what that means is there is is no real way that if there are any Sinhalese believers, they are so weak, so ill-resourced, that they really, on their own, they cannot reach the rest of their people. So in Australia, we need cross-cultural missionaries who will reach these unreached people groups. 
it might be worth you spending some time in prayer thinking about these groups here in our own country who have almost no access to the gospel within their own cultural group. We're going to hear a little bit more just about that now from Celia. Hi everyone, uh, if I haven't met you, my name is Celia Tooth and I too work with the uh, staff team here at the EU. And a core value that uh, we have as an EU is uh, resourcing the LRLR. And if you haven't heard what that is, we mean by LRLR, those people who are less reached with the gospel, in other words they haven't heard about Jesus, or they're Christians who are less resourced, like Rowan was saying, so less resourced in terms of things like sound Bible teaching or training. Um, and we're committed to this because there is an immense need and some of those figures there just showed it. But I don't know if you're anything like me, but sometimes it's hard to get your, your head around well, actually how big is that need. And so to help us out, I'm going to show us a short clip. It's about a guy who... Um, He's probably no more than five years, five to seven years older than you, a guy called Eugene, who'd done tons of evangelism while he was on his university campus and about the needs which he discovered as he went to China. And so we're going to see what life is like over there and we're going to hear American pastor uh, John Piper actually read out some of the letter which Eugene wrote back to his home church to describe the need. Two things to say, even though Eugene was an American student and he was talking about needs of comparison between the States and in China, the bigger comparison which he was really drawing was between Western countries, which includes places like our own, Australia, and again the needs which are elsewhere. And I don't know if you were like me, but when you saw the camera zooming in and going through the spiral in the mosque that you couldn't help be struck by, the, again, that sheer number where, yes, there are needs everywhere, but the needs elsewhere are just enormous. So why are we talking about this in our public meeting? Well, partially because we here in the EU are extremely well-resourced. We're already reached with the good news of Jesus, that's why we're here, and we actually have good things at our disposal to help us grow in our understanding of who Jesus is. We get to come week after week to a public meeting where we hear the Bible taught faithfully. We get to go to church on Sunday. We get to go to conferences like ANCON or NextGen or KIC, NTE. And we get to go to training things like fusion courses, things which are run by our churches. And we even have a Bible and theological books or Christian books which are written in our own language that we can actually readily understand and read. And so we are in such a position and being over 900 strong that even without counting those who have left the EU, that we could actually make a tremendous impact on serving God's kingdom and especially amongst the less reached and the less resourced. But I want to say that the fact that we prioritise LRLR isn't just because of the sheer numbers. And it's not just because they don't have resources and we do. But it's actually because God loves them. He actually loves them just as much as he loves us and they matter to him. 
The thing is, they just don't know it. And so day after day, they go on practising their religion and they have no idea about Jesus. And therefore, because God loves them, that's why it influences our priorities here as an EU, to choose to love them because he does. And you might be thinking, well, Celia, you just don't understand. I don't feel like I'm an expert. I don't feel like I'm very well resourced. But in truth, if you thought about all the conferences and all the things where we can actually hear the Bible taught, we actually are compared to those who cannot access those things. And you might also be thinking, well, Celia, you don't actually know my church. Like, there are needs at my church and I can't just leave them. Well, and that might be true too. But maybe I could illustrate it like this. If you to go to the casualty department at the closest hospital, so whether it's RPA, Canterbury, St George, wherever you live, let's just say you'd broken your arm and you're sitting there in the waiting room next to someone who was actually finding it really difficult to breathe. In fact, they were going blue and they were gasping for air. And out comes the doctor to go, who's next? Well, who would you want the doctor to go to first? You with the cut arm or the person who's struggling to breathe? And so that is why, even though needs are everywhere, we prioritise the less reached and the less resourced. And as Paul wrote, which were the words which John Piper wrote, um, thus, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. And so I want to encourage us as we keep hearing about these things and we know that the gospel is unstoppable, that we would as an EU continue to pray, to give, to consider going and that again that we might think about the tremendous impact we could make on God's church, not just now but in the future years and on the last day that we might see many of these brothers and sisters standing alongside us in our eternal home. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, that you have given us freedom here to understand who you are. Father, to rejoice with people uh, like our brother or sister in pharmacy who has become a Christian. But Father, give us a heart which would match yours for those people who do not know you outside of our own suburbs, outside of our own state and our own country. We pray, Father, that you would soften our hearts for this so that it would beat in time with yours and share that global concern. Help us to be your servants in this matter. Amen.